So when we meet Jesus and we declare that He is the Son of God, immediately you become a son or a daughter. Immediately your identity is given to you. That we are loved and that we are grounded and rooted in His love and we know that we're His kids, then all of a sudden we get to understand what we're made for, what our purpose is, which is where inheritance really begins. Intimacy says God chose you and He loves you. Jesus Christ died for you because God loves you that much that He wants relationship with you. You can't perform it. You can't earn it. You have to receive it. So what we've been talking about, looking at the book of Hebrews, studying this, is that we are better covenant people and that we are carriers of His presence. And that is what we what we get to look at and understand as we study the book of Hebrews and as we have talked about from the very beginning, it's a, it's a technical book. It, 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 it requires us to understand a, a, a lot of historical context. We spent the first couple weeks on historical context giving us some of these larger themes that are in the book of Hebrews that the, that the readers and those who are hearing the book or the letter read would have understood naturally. And so it's a difficult, it's a challenging book for us because we don't live in that culture. We don't think of things that way. We don't see things that way. And Hebrews 7, for sure, as we talk about Melchizedek, um, is, a, is a topic that will challenge us because it's not our normative thing that we're thinking about. So let's, um, let's look at Melchizedek and where he begins to show up. If you've been reading, and hopefully you've been reading Hebrews as we've been studying this and going through this, this book, we've asked you to be reading Hebrews and continuing to journal and ask questions, circle things, ask questions of the text. As we like to say, when we're doing inductive Bible study, one of the steps of studying our word is by being comfortable just asking questions as we're reading scripture, that you have a journal out and a piece of paper out and that you're always asking questions of the text. Um, God's not afraid of your questions. The Bible's not afraid of your questions. And I think one of, the, one of the beginning points of being someone who, is, who studies the word is, is being able to recognize things in the text and ask questions of those things that are going on in the text. And so we wanna, we wanna invite you to be reading the book of Hebrews throughout these months that we're studying Hebrews. And so let's start at uh, Hebrews 4. We're gonna jump to the end of Hebrews 4 in, in verse 14. And uh, this is... In my messages on rest, on the rest that Jesus speaks of in Hebrew, or that the author speaks of in Hebrews 4, the end of the chapter ends like this. And anytime we have that therefore, it is in response to what we have heard in previously. So therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. One thing that I want to mention right there, see that F in the brackets? That is telling you that this is a translation of a word that is, uh, I wouldn't say it's in dispute, but there's different ways of translating it. And you can, you can cross-reference it by looking in different translations. And, it, and what it says in other translations is it says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the face we, prof we profess. So, as we profess this faith, 
It is holding firmly to Jesus who has gone through heaven. We have this picture of him going up to heaven. That's not what the, what the word is, is actually saying. It's giving us a, a picture of him going through. What have we talked about in him going through something? We've talked about the veil, and there is that implication. Really, what this is referencing is the in context is this discussion about the veil and about how in 11, chapter 10 and 11, how it's talking about how Jesus' life and his body became our access point through that curtain of Jesus that we have this access to the Father and that the Father has access to us to make his home in us, people of his presence, that we are his dwelling place, that we are a priest. We have these, this great high priest. But one thing I want us to know, and this might get a little bit in the weeds, but that's okay, so I, I, um, is that heaven and earth in this in this context, when it talks about heavens, when it talks about earth, when it talks about sun and moon and stars, that's generally apocalyptic language that is talking about a judgment or something that's going on. It's not a literal heaven and earth. And in this context, it's actually usually referring to the temple. So the temple was the place where heaven meets earth for the, for the Israels, for Israelites and for their culture. The temple is the place where heaven meets earth. The priest is the mediator between heaven and earth. And so they would think of in their concept and in their consciousness of that reality, they would think of the temple as the connection point between heaven and earth. So they would refer to it as heaven and earth and the holy of holies would have been that heavenly place, right? So is that, you tracking with me on that? I'm getting in the weeds a little bit. So that's that heavenly place, that holy of holy, the most holy place. And what happened? Jesus went into that place through his blood, through his sacrifice, through his life, he accessed that point place for us and became our high priest. And so it wasn't talking about Jesus going to heaven. It was talking about him going into the holy of holies, not the holy of holies that we designed on earth, but that heavenly holy of holy place that he went into that we'll talk about more in Hebrews. But it's the type and the shadow. The temple is the type and the shadow of what exists in heaven. And so he went into the most holy place. He poured his blood out as an offering for us that we would be able to have access to that Holy of Holies. But now where is the Holy of Holies? It is in us. And so thinking of that, it makes it important. The reason that that's important is because if we understand that the heavens and the earth are referring to the temple system or sometimes in scripture is referring to leaders or political leaders or cities or people, the sun, the moon, the stars, that's referring to the, 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 the political systems of the day. These are not, the, these are not literal heavens and earth, it helps us understand a lot of things that maybe Jesus said, a lot of things that were said in scripture, a lot of things that were said in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. In Matthew 5, for, for instance, Jesus says this, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. When Jesus says the law or the prophets, we understand from scripture that this is talking about the whole of the Old Testament and the, prophetic, the prophecies about the Messiah, that he came to fulfill that. And he did fulfill that. But he goes on to say, for assuredly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will be by no means passed from the law until all is fulfilled. People will take that scripture and say, well, until the heavens and the earth pass away, we are still under the law. Okay, so the whole thing, we should be uh, not wearing mixed clothing, we shouldn't be having tattoos, we shouldn't be doing anything on a Sunday, you know, all the law, all the thing, we're still under that because the heavens and the earth have not yet passed away. And people take that scripture out of context and then they, that, that religious spirit that wants to draw free believers 
new covenant believers back into the old covenant mindset, that, 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 that Jewish mindset to say, now you have to come back under the law, which is what Paul spent so much of his letters combating against. Well, the heaven and the earth hasn't passed away, therefore we have to remain under this law. If we understand that the heavens and the earth that Jesus was referring to and that the people who heard him speaking would have instantly made the connection that he's talking about people, political systems, he's talking about the temple system, he's talking about the law, the covenant, the priesthood, all of that is going to pass away. So this was huge information for them. As we refer often to Matthew 23 and Matthew 24, this was huge information for them that Jesus had put in his crosshairs this religious system that was passing away, that it was being that he fulfilled it and that it is going to pass away, which we know that in fact did happen as the temple was destroyed, the priesthood was destroyed, the genealogies were destroyed, there was no more priesthood, there was no more sacrificial system, sacrifice system, all of that passed away. That was heaven and earth to them. That was the center of their universe, and it was removed. And so we can look at verses like Matthew 5 and not read them literally, but understand that he's speaking of an apocalyptic nature that gives us that reality of saying heaven and earth have, in fact, passed away to those who heard that and what that would have meant to them. And that's where we find ourselves. So anyway, you guys got that? Back to Hebrews 4. Um, The other thing I love about Hebrews 4 at the end of this passage is that it links that king and priest reality and that as it's talking about a great high priest who has gone into the temple, that his throne is in that place. And so it is linking that king and that priest reality that it is not saying we go into a throne room to find, to access God and the grace and the mercy that he has for us, right? But we are, we are accessing a temple through that, the great high priest and he is going there for us. And so that, that connection point of where is his throne it is in a place, it is in the Holy of Holies, it is a, in a temple picture, and that we have a great high priest who has gone in there and has sat down and is now interceding for us on, on our behalf. And so one picture that I want us, to, well, we can, we can tackle that as we get further into Hebrews. So then we go to Hebrews 5, on our way to Hebrews 7. And um, so every high priest is selected from among the people. Verse five, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but, he said, but God said to him, verse five, you are my son, today I have become your father, Psalm 2, seven. And he says in another place, Psalm 110, verse four, this is an important passage about the priesthood of Christ and about Melchizedek. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so now you're starting to see Melchizedek popping up in in verse five. So let me make sure that in verse eight, son though he was, he learned obedience. Now we understand that Jesus learned and grew throughout his life. Um, But what we have to to look at this in the original language, we see that what it is actually saying is that Jesus experienced obedience. He fully experienced it by having to submit to what was going on and saying, I will this, not my will, but yours be done. So, So it wasn't as if Jesus was learning something, but yet he was experiencing to the depth of something and saying he fully experienced what it looks like to obey. And that is that 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 illusion that we have to be a great high priest 
who has, who has in fact been tempted in every way that we are, if there are ever times in your life where you know there's something that you're supposed to do that God is burning onto your heart to do and you don't want to do it because it may lead you into difficulty, it may put, break peace in a relationship, it may, it may push back on something. Do you, do you have that experience? Well, this is what the, the scripture is saying is that Jesus understands He understands what it looks like to say, I am going to walk in full obedience to my father. He has experienced that just as you have experienced it. And then it said this, once made perfect. So was Jesus imperfect and had to be made perfect through suffering? Because if you look at this scripture, that's what it seems to be telling us is that through suffering, Jesus was made perfect. Therefore, before suffering, he was imperfect. This is not what is being taught here, and we have to be really careful that we keep these things in context and that we look at the full picture. What it's actually saying is that word is to be made complete. It is to be finished. And so what it's saying to us is that he, once it was finished, once it was, he was made perfect, he had finished and completed, accomplished what he had come to do in that place of obedience. He became the source of eternal salvation. Okay, that makes sense? Great. Okay, so I, <laughs> uh, warning against falling away is what we have in verse 11. We have so much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. Listen, remember the context of Hebrews. I listened to my podcast the other day, and I was like, dang, it is really fast. So now I'm halfway through my message up here, and I'm like, hey, take a break. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> slow this down just a little bit. If, if I'm listening to it and I'm like, that is really fast, it's a, I should probably slow it down for you guys. I know. Okay. So the context of this is that people are being following Jesus. They're saying yes to following Jesus. And then they are being tempted back to an old system that was still in place. Okay. So they could literally go back to the temple system, to the sacrificial system, to the old covenant. They could physically and spiritually, religiously, however you want to say it, they could go back. And they were experiencing tons of persecution. They were being ostracized. They were being... uh, economically and relationally alienated. They were suffering consequences of their choice to follow Jesus. And the, and the, the system that they had left, the temple system, the high priest system, all of that was still in place. Imagine it, right down the street. I can go right down the street and I can offer my sacrifices that are allotted, that I'm supposed to offer from the Old Testament system, and my life will go back to normal. My family will go back to normal. My business will go back to normal. All of this stuff that I'm suffering, it will go back to normal. It is right there. All I have to do is reject that Jesus was the Messiah and he was the perfect once for all time sacrifice and I can go back to the old sacrificial religious system and things will go back to normal. This is the reality of what they're talking about. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, I want to talk to you more about all of these things, but we're still dealing with some of the introductory level stuff. Okay, that's not a, it's not a punishment as you read this in your private time. Hebrews, you shouldn't be taking this as some kind of judgment or punishment against you. It's not talking to you. It's talking to people who are being tempted to walk out their front door, get the doves and the goat, 
and go down to the old system and say, hey, I was wrong for following Jesus. Here's my, here's my grain offering and my burnt dove offering and my lamb. This is the reality of what they're tempted to do. And so the author is pushing back, pushing back into that. Now, of course, we can draw principles from that and from this book, we should draw principles from that book, that we would be people who wouldn't be settling for milk when we should be people who are eating meat, that we shouldn't be people who are still at the introductory level of our relationship with Jesus when we should be so deep and immersed in our relationship with him. So then it gets us to Hebrews 6. So, so therefore, we want to move beyond these elementary teachings um, about useless rituals, uh, about baptism, about laying on of hands. And, and, and so it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. What are the powers of the coming age? That is the age that we are in right now. Not heaven, not eternity. Well, I mean, eternity in our hearts. We have resurrection life. We have eternal life. So yes, in a way, it's tied into that for sure. But what he's saying is that people who have said yes to Jesus, they have stepped out of the old age. There's two ages that exist. The old age and this new age that Jesus has inaugurated, a new kingdom, a new covenant, and people who have said yes and entered into that new age, it is impossible for them to go back through, because this is the pathway through, is the death of Jesus, and Jesus cannot be sacrificed again. If you go back to the old system, there is no sacrificial system. There is, we have shown you that there is nothing in the old covenant that's going to bring you to righteousness. There's no way to do more sacrifices. Jesus can't die again. This is the one way. This is the only way. This is the true way to enter into the new age that we are stepping into the new covenant. This old age is finished. This new age has come. So it's impossible for you, if you're trying to apply this verse to you, it's impossible to you, for you to apply this verse to you. Now, in principle, I get it, but mostly people pull this out and they end up with religion and guilt heaped upon them. Did I commit some unpardonable sin somewhere along the way? I mean, if I had you close your eyes and say, how many of you have wondered, like, am I, did I somewhere along the way accidentally, unintentionally commit the unpardonable sin, some, something that I've done wrong, incorrect, so I can no longer be brought back to repentance? This is not applying to you because you can't go down the street to the temple and engage in an old covenant system because that old covenant system, that old, that temple, that sacrificial system is no longer in existence. Now, we can give ourselves over to a spirit of religion. We can get way caught up in the Old Testament fixation. We can get way caught up in the, in the, in the sacrifices and the calendars and the, and, and the Hebraic stuff. We can, we can begin to believe that we have to go back through that system in order to be right with Christ. So we, that that spirit of religion still exists to draw us back. But we have the sacrifice of Christ. And so the answer to this rhetorical question that's being asked here, of course, of course you can be brought back to repentance. Of course we can find our way back to repentance because as long as we have breath in our lungs, we have the grace and the mercy of the completed work of Jesus Christ that has made a way for us to enter in to the holy of holies, to enter into his promises and to enter in to the life of of Christ. And so this isn't necessarily applying to us. So here we go. Um, even though we talk to you like this, dear friends, verse nine. So this challenge was very stern from the author of Hebrews. But even though we talk to you like this, we are convinced of better things in your case. I think that's what I'm trying to say this morning. 
We can live in that place of shame and doubt and fear, but I want you to hear me say, I am convinced of better things for you than living with shame and doubt and fear and in, and in wonder if God is for me, if he's with me, has he turned his back on me? I am convinced of better things for you because we have Jesus revealed to us and that is where we live, that he has not forgotten the works that you've done and the love that you've shown and how you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. Okay, through faith and patience, that you would not be lazy. And that word lazy is actually that you would not become dull to the salvation of Jesus Christ, that you wouldn't become numb to it. And that through faith and patience, you would lay hold of the promise and the inheritance that is yours. Can I encourage you and challenge you that our inheritance and our promises, we lay hold of those through consistency. We lay hold of those through patience. We lay hold of those through faith. And that we lay hold of those by not becoming numb to what has been given to us. That we do not become dull to the, to the miraculous and powerful life of Christ that is available to us as we invite him in as Lord of our life. That we would not begin to live in such a way that we are numb to the presence and the power of Jesus Christ that is in our life, available for you, available for your relationships, available for your community, available for your marriage, available for in every way. And if you've become numb to that, you will lose patience and you will not hold on in faith and you will begin to float. And we don't want people just floating through life. We want people who are saying, I am laying hold of the inheritance and the promises that are mine in Christ. And so, um, so on we go, just so we know. Here we go. Okay, so the end of six says this. He has become a high priest forever in the order. Okay, okay, let's back up a little bit. A little bit. Verse 16 of chapter six. People swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was, uh, where'd it go? Of what, that's okay. Uh, to the very, Jesus wanted to make the ongoing nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs, of, the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. There we go. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, all, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Please, I'm gonna hammer this. The context, people who are being persecuted, people who are losing their, uh, their livelihood, their connections, their families, they have fled. In leaving the old covenant system, they have let go of everything and all they have is this hope of Jesus, the great high priest that they are holding on to. Do not become discouraged and faint back into the old system. Do not be like those who didn't go into the promised land because of unbelief, but be like those who through belief stepped forward and said, I will hold on to your promises. That's what he's talking about. They have fled to take hold of this hope. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain to where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, let's talk about Melchizedek. Now we made it to chapter seven. Um, yay, all right. So they're thinking and they're wondering what is our, our great high priest? We have a priesthood in place. So, so if, our, if our connection to God is no longer going through Moses and then Aaron, 
and then the Levitical priesthood and the law and the covenant. That's our connection point to to the, the holy of holies, the temple, the sacrificial system, to our forgiveness, to our connection to God. If we are no longer approaching him through that system, they're, this, they're, they're completely immersed in that system. So to say to them, now you step out of that system and you are connecting to God through Jesus, resurrected and enthroned. You're connecting through Jesus. They're like, but we need, what about the priest? What's this And so you see why the author of Hebrews is hammering this concept of Jesus as our high priest because it is such a familiar concept to them that we need a priest. But what what is trying to be unfolded here is that Jesus is not only the priest who connects us with God, that Jesus is God, and then in our connection with his priesthood, that we are connected directly to him, to his heart, to his promises, and to his fulfillment of his purposes on the earth. And so this concept of priesthood is so important. And so what the author is trying to do is saying, we have these two options. The old covenant system that you are walking out of has the Levitical priesthood and all of the rules and all of the law, but we are now in a new system. We are not gonna go back to that former system We, in fact, are going to connect ourselves to a priesthood, Melchizedek, who existed before the covenant, before the law, before Mount Sinai, before the tablets, before any of that. We are going to go way, way back in history, in Israel history, and I'm going to talk to you about a guy who has like four verses total about him in Genesis and in Psalms. And in Genesis, it's just referring to the line of David saying, I will make you a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. It doesn't give you any new information about it. But it's saying, we want to go before this old covenant system was in place so that you know that this is an unending priesthood. This is something that we're referencing from history that you can have confidence when you're by faith, you lay hold of this, that you are not laying hold of something that is brand new. You're not laying hold of something that is shaky. You're not laying hold of something that we're, we're simply making up right now. We want to go back historically to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek for us, we have, we have really no grid for Melchizedek, but we have to understand that out of these three, three verses in Genesis, this one verse in Psalm, and then during the intertestamental period, the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, that there are books being written about Melchizedek with thoughts about Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Who is Melchizedek? Who is Melchizedek? Is, he, is, is it Michael, the archangel? Is it, is it a Christophany? That is, is it Jesus in the flesh who showed up for a moment, a period in time? Is it, the, is it the, the, the commander of the Lord's army that meets Joshua in Joshua chapter five? Is that who Melchizedek is? Is Melchizedek Seth, Noah's oldest son? Is, is Melchizedek, or could it be that Melchizedek is just some Gentile who is connected to God and in being connected to God, that God honors him as righteous, and, na- and he takes that name of saying, priest of the Lord most high, and that there is something that is powerful about a heart that has simply chosen God in the midst of a Canaanite culture where they worship multiple gods, and that there is a man in the midst of that who said, I want to honor and serve God. And that Abraham, recognizing that, is able to come and to, to honor that reality and that office that is being held by Melchizedek. So what, who is Melchizedek? Not an alien, sorry. Um, <laughs> Melchizedek, 
is not, I'm, I'm going to say this just to, for you guys to study this out, okay? But there's nothing in, in scripture, there's nothing in the text of Genesis that gives us the impression that Melchizedek is a Christophany, that he is, a, that he is an, an appearance of Jesus, that he is a divine being. There's nothing in scripture that says that. And you guys know me. Like my heart is like, if it's in scripture, then I'll believe it. If it's not in scripture, let's not make stuff up. Let's go back to context. Not that it's bad to say, well, maybe this, maybe that. Fine, I'm all, I'm all for maybes. But foundationally, if it doesn't hold up within Scripture, then we're going to have to really wrestle with it. So you, you have this, this picture that says maybe he's, he's divine being. There's really no, there's no implication of that in Scripture and that he's a type, he, or that he is a Christophany. But I would say he is definitely a type of Christ, that there is this tying in, saying Melchizedek is representative of Jesus and Jesus's priesthood because it has this in within this story which we'll read in just a second within this story you see a man who has no listing of his genealogy you have no listing of the beginning of his life or the end of his life not because he is immortal but because God wanted to make sure that we saw something that his priesthood was based on the righteousness of his heart and not on his genealogy that his priesthood was based on what he chose in the midst of a culture, not based on the fact that it was handed down to him and written down and saying, you're a priest, it's hereditary. No, that's what the law does. The law creates people who think that they can get in just based on who their parents are. Like, th th that's that reality that says, no, he's looking for people. Second Chronicles 16.9 that we love, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Do you think that God is not paying attention to other people outside of Abram at the time? Do you think that God is not revealing himself to other people? Do you think it would not be crazy that he would in fact take a Canaanite king in a Canaanite city with a Canaanite name and he would pull him so far outside of this covenant and so far outside of the realm of history and then he would connect him to Abraham who in his loins has the nations and that the nations being represented in Melchizedek would meet with the nations that are represented in Abraham. And it would be this illusion that God has to say, my salvation is not just for one sect of people, it is for the entire world. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, that he would go outside of his own quote unquote chosen people who hadn't quite come about yet because we're still early in the story, but he would go outside of that and that Abraham would recognize something in Melchizedek, this priest and this king. Guys, it's, it's fun. I know it's a, okay. So it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff here. Um, so just remembering that context, understanding that the Israelites had a ton of background on Melchizedek and that it would have been part of their lore. We have lore, we have legends, we have stories that we tell. John Henry, George Washington, I know these are real people, but we have these big, long, we, have, we have these huge stories that now are all around them. I think that's the same thing that had happened to Melchizedek during that intertestamental period. So the story of him being like uh, Michael, the story of him being Jesus, the story of him being supernatural and divine, all these stories began to pick up steam. And so people would have known that legend so much more than we do. And so when the author of Hebrews starts talking about Melchizedek, they're like, oh yeah, we know about Melchizedek. He's that guy that our forefather, Abraham, paid a tithe to, a, 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 an honor gift to after he fought this war. So Hebrews 7. You guys are all like, no, please don't. I won't. I will, no, I will not. No, I will not. 
So I want you guys to see in chapter seven, the main point of Melchizedek as you're reading through chapter seven is that Melchizedek was a priest of the most high God regardless of his ancestry and regardless of his connection to the old covenant and to the Levitical system. And so what that says is that God was looking for that heart to be able to say, here is somebody that I can use to bless the nations as they bless Abraham and bless Levi, Levi, and who was not yet born, but existed in Abraham, if you will. And that in so doing, connected Melchizedek, connected Jesus outside of that covenantal system so that when the time came for the people of Hebrews to understand who Jesus was and what Jesus was like, that they were able to go past Moses, past Aaron, past the Levitical priesthood, and they would go all the way back to this obscure figure in history, Melchizedek, who doesn't have a genealogy listed, who doesn't have a birthday listed, who doesn't have an end of life listed, that it is this priesthood that, that, that appears to exist forever and that the author of Hebrews ties our priest, our high priest, and our confidence in the faith to say we are tied to Jesus who is in the line of Melchizedek, not in the line of this old covenant. Why does that matter? Because the old covenant has an end date on it, but the priesthood of Jesus does not. And it is an endless priesthood that we access the Father through and that he accesses us through. That in the line of Melchizedek, it's not that we should spend a bunch of time trying to figure out who Melchizedek is because who Melchizedek is does not matter near as much as us discovering who Jesus is. And it is Jesus who gets, it is, it is the reality of saying, I am your high priest and you come through me. And as this covenant ends, and a new covenant has a place. I am the great high priest of this covenant in the line of Melchizedek that we understand that that reality is not tied to ancestry, it's not tied to law, and it's not tied to the tablets, it's not tied to any of that. It is tied solely to Jesus Christ. So who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek was a man whose heart was after God, and scripture says that he was a priest of the most high God, and he was king of Jerusalem. This is a beautiful picture of a priest and of a king who Abraham recognized and a type for Christ who is what? Who is our priest and he is our king. And the covenant that existed in Abraham that wasn't there yet bent its knee to Jesus, bent its knee to that type of Christ, Melchizedek. And Jesus is our priest and he is our king. His throne exists in the temple. We access the temple through him as our high priest. And that as we go into that temple, we receive grace and mercy whenever we need. We go to his throne. We go to his throne. We go to his throne because we have a high priest that isn't tied to a covenant or a date on a calendar. He is eternal. He is the beginning and he is the end. He is the I am. And he is our priest. And that's why we cling to, that's why the people who are reading Hebrews cling to this reality as they're departing this religious system. So as you be encouraged, as you are walking out of religious systems, that you would not find yourself walking out of religious systems and, and finding yourself floating in unhealthy ways and unhealthy places. I don't like church. I don't read the Bible. I don't do this. I'm all free. Everything's free. It's all good. Yay, look at me. No, what you've done is you've let go of something that was a foundation for your life, healthy or not, it was grounding you and you have 
let go of it and you're beginning to float in the winds of all of the stuff that's going on around your life and you will get bruised and you will get battered. If you're going to let go of religion, make sure that you are grabbing a hold of something timeless. If you're going to let go of religion, make sure that you are holding on to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that we would say, yes, we are a church. We are a gathering of people who do not have any space or time for religion, but we also are not a group of people who reject religion so much that we find ourselves floating in whatever, whatever, but that we find ourselves holding on to Christ, our great high priest who is timeless, even as this legend Melchizedek is timeless. That's who Jesus is, and that's what we hold on to. So yeah, breaking religion and letting go of religion means what are you going to hold on to? Who are you going to cling to by faith as it talks about these people in Hebrews? All right.